BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is a sponsored episode with Dr. Christina Johns, who's a pediatric emergency care physician and the senior medical advisor at PM Pediatric Care, where she provides a wealth of pediatric expertise for patients and families everywhere. Dr. Johns is an emergency physician who's a board-certified pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine doctor. She completed her medical training at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She served for years as the attending physician and assistant division chief in the Emergency Medicine and Trauma Center at Children's National at George Washington University School of Medicine, where I went to the emergency room for the first time when I broke my pinky as a fifth grader. Just wanted to get that a little personal. (laughs) And so today we're talking about the emergencies that tend to come up, particularly during holiday seasons, but in general, from infants to toddlers to school age to teens, and how we can prepare and what we can do to navigate the system a little bit and know where to go. Now, if you are an anxious person about emergencies, you have to know yourself before you continue to listen. Do you like to be prepared and kind of know the lay of the land? Does it make you feel calmer? Or do you feel like this is just going to make me think about things that hadn't even occurred to me to worry about? Know thyself and make the decision, but do listen to this with the idea that most of the time things go right. We just want to be prepared. If you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to follow, rate, and even write a little review. If you want to DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast, I try to check in as often as possible. And for more useful tips for parents, you can check out at Dear Dr. Christina on Instagram. And Dr. Christina Johns also has a blog, Dear Dr. Christina, and on pmpediatriccare.com. So I'm very excited to talk to you because you're a pediatric emergency care physician. So because you're a pediatric emergency physician and we have Thanksgiving and the holidays, there's so much coming up where I don't know why you'll be able to tell me, but what are the things that it seems like holidays and when you're kind of not paying attention, they're going off track, emergencies seem to come up 
more often, or maybe it's because we just notice them more often. But I wanted to hear from you about kind of what happens in those particularly heightened times for ER overload. What can parents do and caregivers do to support and protect their family from the typical ER visits that you see? And when they do have an emergency, what are the best practices to, you know, take action when you're feeling completely terrified and overwhelmed? Just those. Great. Yeah. Those are right. Let's, we'll wrap that up in that in just a couple minutes, right? No, that's, those are, they're terrific questions and so important, you know, around the holidays. I think it's really a confluence of things from Halloween to New Year, lots of celebrating going on, but also happens to be the time, and especially right now, when we have our, in pediatrics, our respiratory virus season. So in addition to many people traveling, uh, people being out of their routine activities, their pediatrician offices being closed, uh, doing other activities, school being out and, uh, and doing things that we don't normally do in our routine daily life, that's when the emergencies start to happen. And so that is when our visits uh, go through the roof, especially right now. I think people have heard about a tremendous volume surge in uh, children's hospitals right now. And so it's kind of the confluence of the perfect storm, if you will, that really makes for a busy time and lots of emergencies for families. And so the thing that I would say that I always tell people is don't forget about your regular pediatrician to give you guidance about which way to go if you aren't sure. You know, obviously for families whose children are having difficulty breathing or who have a significant injury, that's when you know that you've got to head to urgent care or to the emergency department. But if you're not sure and you don't have a respiratory distress, for example, situation, using your pediatrician as a guide for next steps is an important thing that a lot of people forget to do in the heat of the moment, believe it or not. I am on faculty in a hospital and I know the ERs get totally overwhelmed and used in ways where you actually didn't need to go to the ER. So I would love, like, what are ways we can kind of protect both our children and the healthcare system? Like, what are some of those situations where here's my internal checklist of there's an emergency or I can call my pediatrician and breathe? Yeah, that's a, it's, it's a great question. And a couple of things, a couple of general over, uh, overlying guidance that I recommend to people is that I say, if it's a life and death situation, so someone who's allergic to bees having a, a, a bee sting or having an anaphylactic reaction, someone who has been in a car accident who may need to have, uh, who is possible for there to be significant injury. Obviously that goes, you know, those, that sets off the radar to go right away to emergency. But then the, it's the more subtle stuff, right? The devil is in the details on some of the uh, on some of the more subtle things. And so I say to folks, if you get seen today, is it going to change potentially change what you do to manage your child tonight? And if the answer to that is, hey, maybe so. Like for example, even something simple like ear pain. If I can get my child seen and get them some treatment or get some guidance sooner, you know, at, on Sunday afternoon, as opposed to Monday morning, 
Is that going to be have an impact? Yes, it might. So that makes sense then to go ahead to proceed to urgent care, for example. We know that's not a life and death situation, but it may we may be able to make our children feel better if we make a change. However, and then on the flip side, if, okay, you know, this rash has been around for 10 days now and today is day 11 and I just had it, it's been around for 10, nothing necessarily is going to be different on day 11. Well, then maybe that's something that could wait until your regular primary care medical home is open and available to you. So I think it is asking some of those kinds of questions can help be a guide. Is it a perfect guide? No, but I think that can be really helpful. And if you bend anxious, I like I always find if you bend anxious and you would take, you know, getting more information is going to alleviate some of that anxiety, go for it. Or maybe if you bend anxious, then you use that checklist more vigilantly. Whereas if you are super relaxed, maybe you need to be more vigilant. And it kind of depends on the tone of the household. What are some things that parents don't realize might be urgent? You know, I think that some kinds of sustained abdominal pain, sometimes that is, uh, I, I see, for example, appendicitis that gets ruptured because someone has sort of hung around a little bit and said, oh, you're, I think you're okay. Or if they have an especially stoic child who, you know, has been complaining kind of off and on, but hasn't really been terribly vocal for the, for the parent, mm-hmm. you know, that is one common thing that I think sustained abdominal pain. I always think it's worth it to investigate a little bit. And that can, investigation can be in different ways, but needs to be addressed if it's sustained. And I think another one that I can give an example of, and this is a fairly common one, some children who have wheezing or asthma. And, you know, there are a lot of parents who really are on the varsity team and who really know how to manage their children's asthma and have been doing it for a long time. And so those tend to be children that sometimes will wait too long to uh, before going in and getting an evaluation. And so they come in really, really sick, where perhaps if they had had some stronger earlier intervention, that it might have perhaps avoided a hospitalization. You mentioned something, which I think is also a really good point, like a stoic kid, depending on your child's temperament, that's going to have an impact on, you know, there are some kids that come to you constantly with worries and ailments, and they need to go see the doctor. And there are some kids who don't even realize the pain that they're in because they just are more stoic. And so it goes back to needing to know your child to be able to make that judgment call. But when in doubt, always reach out to your physician. Always think about, I like the idea of just, is the treatment today? Will we find something out that will change tonight versus tomorrow? Right. That's exactly right. I was going to say, I think that most pediatric clinicians would say, hey, look, I would rather have a lot of fire alarms and few fires than the opposite way around. And I really tried to use that and encourage families to you know, keep that in mind. I don't mind seeing patients all day long and reassuring them that, yes, that sounds really scary after this investigation. Let me reassure you. I'll be glad to do that a million different times over rather than miss something that waited too long 
or that somebody didn't didn't take seriously. You know, it's always heartbreaking when you think about when parents say, I don't want to bother my physician. Because of course, anybody who went into pediatric care cares about children's health desperately enough to go through a tremendous amount of education and lack of sleep and (laughs) care for others and stress and all sorts of things. So I hope people get just even a reminder that your physician, all of the folks who choose to work, hopefully in child's health, are so committed to those fire alarms, making sure that they, you know, don't miss any of the fires. So I'm glad that you said that. Absolutely. I say that often. I say, hey, look, that's what we're here for. Call us. I'm more than happy to hold people's hand as they walk, have to try to walk through and navigate what, uh, what may be falling their child on any given day. What are the big events that you see by age? So starting with infants, what are some of those moments that parents should just be aware of so they're prepared to respond, not so that they're prepared because bad things happen? Yeah. I, you know, for infants, right, a lot of it is first-time parents too. So I think it's kind of keeping, you know, keeping that in mind and experience really does matter in many cases in, uh, in the parenting department. For infants, it, what comes by our way is uh, lots of young babies with fever. And we take that, the younger the child, the more seriously we take it. And so I think many parents don't realize that if an infant, for example, in the first month of life, that if there is a fever over about 100.4 Fahrenheit or 38 centigrade, that we are going to do some investigation and some tests to make sure that there isn't a serious infection going on. And little ones have less reserve than, uh, than bigger ones. And so we tend to be very careful and very conservative about uh, managing fever in the infant age group. And then in infants, the types of things that we tend to see are a lot of, you know, tired parents and accidents that happen. I can't tell you the number of times that the a child has been, you know, picked up in the car seat that they thought that they had strapped their child in the car seat and bloop, and they, you know, flip out the front and then there's a head injury to be evaluated. So we see those kinds of injuries. And then, of course, all of the infant feeding related types of things, of vomiting and formula intolerance, even constipation, even rashes, all of that. And so I would say to any parent that the younger that your child is, the more that you need to say, maybe have a lower threshold to pull that fire alarm and to check things out and make sure that everything is okay. And so much of the time it is, but the homework and the due diligence does matter in this age group. Okay. And now as infants become toddlers, and it's so funny because I do remember when my first baby, I when she was like, let's say six month old, six months old, I was with my friend who had a 12 month old, or maybe she was even a few 15 months, and she was eating like food and chewing. And to me, that looked like such a massive leap of faith. <laughs> like as a, as a new mom to an infant, I was like, how is this child not choking all the time? Like it just feels so big. And then my friend was super casual because she got experience with it. But I, and I also, by the way, took CPR, but felt like, wow, I don't, rem- I took it when I was pregnant and had no recollection once I gave birth. 
how on it goes out the window a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it is also developmental because you're just like, you have to kind of ease into things that at one point in time, you just feel like this is insurmountable. It's going to be one big emergency room. I remember the first time that my, I have so many friends that wanted to be with their pediatrician the first time they tried a nut or a taste of peanut butter because they were so anxious about it. But Mm -hmm. as we develop and get more comfortable in being in charge of a human life or more than one, what are some other things that you see? And I guess we did infants. So what about toddlers? Yeah, toddlers, right? This is when toddlers, they're mobile, right? And they want to get a little bit of agency and be live their best life. And so this is the age group where we often see ingestions and spitting, you know, as you mentioned, you know, that big gigantic thing in their mouth. And so even when, you know, sometimes they'll get a hold of like an entire grape, a grape that hasn't been cut, right? Which is one of the tenets of pediatric emergency medicine. We cut grapes for children up through college. And I'm being silly, of course, but, (laughs) but that is one of the things that we all joke amongst ourselves. But that's the age where we do start to see those types of you know, kids are experimenting with putting things in, in their mouth and whether it's uh, medications that happen to be in a bottle or put in a baggie that someone says, oh, I'll just bring my medicines in my purse, take them out of the, in, and put them in a little baggie and a child gets into it and all of a sudden they've gotten into their grandparents' blood pressure medication or something like that. This happens all the time in the toddler age group, especially around the holidays when we have our Uh, extended family visiting. And so it's really a watch out for me when families go traveling or have folks over. It's always also good to do a little bit of an uh, environmental scan of your own place to make sure that somebody didn't leave out the the Tylenol bottle or or have access for kids. Thankfully, obviously the childproof bottles help, but I'm incredibly impressed at the agency that this group has with the ability to get into things. And it's such a good thing to remember if you are having visitors, like you've sorted out all of that safety in your own home, but you forgot grandma's coming and has a baggie in her purse or a pillbox that opens up really easily. So that's good. What are some other, because I feel like you can, with toddlers in particular, there are probably so many other proactive ways to prevent some of these emergencies. Scanning the environment is a good one too, if you're going somewhere new and just getting on eye level and looking on the ground. and. Yeah, it's, it's furniture that's close to wind the, to windows, for example. You know, toddlers are great climbers. They'll climb up, and if a window's open, they will push out the window and can fall out. I've seen that. Same thing with blinds and, and cords on windows. Same thing with toddlers, for example. They are fantastic at pulling on window blind cords and easy for them to get tangled up, whether it's around an extremity, their arm or their leg, or even sadly around their neck. So there can be really some very, very serious injuries that that can happen in this age group. In addition to all the regular stuff that, you know, running into uh, the coffee table and sustaining a laceration across the forehead or eyebrow and burns, you know, putting hands up against a glass fireplace cover, for example. These are the kinds of things that we generally tend to see so commonly. Without terrifying people, it's good to just be aware of those things that you just, that wouldn't occur to you, particularly if you're in someone else's home or your own home, but you're not used to having a toddler and you haven't 
thought about how you could use one thing to move, to climb up to another thing, to be near a cord. So without making people have spirals of anxiety, this, you know, this is meant to give you those proactive ways to just kind of scan quickly. And then you get more fluent at it as you practice. Right. What other, and, and there are some things that are inevitable and that's why we're hopefully, you know, you know in advance. I mean, is it helpful for people to find out exactly what the numbers are that they would need to call for various emergencies and locations for support? Most definitely. I really encourage people at home and away to understand what, you know, people talk about the medical home. I'd like to talk about the medical neighborhood. So understand that when you're traveling, know where is the closest urgent care and and, and, uh, a pediatric urgent care, if possible. Know where is there an emergency department that has pediatricians or pediatric emergency physicians and even the children's hospital. Those are kinds of things to, to have a little bit of a good gauge when you're traveling and when you're home. I think this really where the medical neighborhood is important. So know your pediatrician's number know where the pediatric urgent care is in your area, as well as the emergency department, so that it's one less thing you need to think about. And, you know, the, and that list too can kind of go on and on. It's, it's keeping the pictures of the medications that your child is on, keeping them up to date. All of that preparedness stuff means that if an urgency or an emergency actually happens, those are a couple of less things that you have to be concerned about. And so you can focus on getting your child well. Actually, on that front, if you know that you live further, this just happened with a a friend of mine. Her child fell and hit his head and it was a really bad gash. And so she wanted him to go to a children's emergency room at the children's hospital, but that was much farther away than the local emergency room. How do you distinguish when it's important to make sure that you have pediatric emergency versus get to any emergency place? So I think that the guidance that I would give is for parents to keep in mind that emergency departments are very good at determining that, oh, hey, this is uh, the acuity of this child's situation is beyond what we have to offer them here at this institution. And so there is a plan, a transfer plan that's already in place. And so teams at emergency departments at community hospitals that don't necessarily have dedicated pediatric services have a way to get children to a place where they can get appropriate care. And really it tends to be, you know, sort of people talk about that golden hour, right? And I say to folks that if it is really more than 30 to 60 minutes for you to get to a dedicated children's medical setting, go to your nearest one, get that evaluation, and then make the determination about next steps. Those are those little things that you can do to uh, really make those moments less stressful because you have the number, you know the location. And even if you're on vacation or at a friend's house that you kind of assessed the, what did you call it, the medical neighborhood? What about as kids enter school age? What are some of the emergencies you see most? Yeah, school age tends to be, right? This is the age of the injury. So this is when kids 
are on the monkey bars at recess and they wind up with an elbow fracture. Or this is when gym class was super fun and in basketball, two kids were, you know, going up for to, to grab a loose ball and they bump heads. So injuries tend to be related to activities tend to be very, very common in this age group. And then, and two, this is the age of where we see kids who have appendicitis with the abdominal pain, like I was talking about. And some of the more common regular types of emergencies that we, that, that span a larger age group. So even extend on into, into young adults, but far and away in, uh, in this group, if we don't see, for example, children with asthma or other known medical conditions, gosh, it is injuries, injuries all day long. Okay. So now are, are there any specific steps to take for school-aged kids in terms of prevention? So I really recommend for parents to be very aware of what kinds of activities and, for example, helmets, padding, appropriate shin guards, the the kind of protective wear that is so incredibly important in injury prevention, those are a big deal. Obviously, that doesn't happen to the same degree in school as it can extracurricularly. And I think the the other side of it is we need to give ourselves a little grace as parents that you know injuries happen in this it, right you can't wrap them in bubble wrap yeah. yeah and you know shoot that is a bummer that there you know we have a big bruise on our forehead because we were going up for that basket in gym class but that happens and it is going to be okay and that is uh, something that I also spend a lot of time talking about with families of this age group where parents who are rushing home from work after a long day, finding out that something happened in gym class and are coming to see me at eight o'clock at night. And, you know, we just stop and take a big breath together and say, all right, we, we got this now. We're in the right place. We're going to take care of it. And then everybody's going to go about their, their night. And I find that that pause uh, really helps. When kids get to an age where they're a little bit more autonomous and kind of able to walk around a little bit more on their own, maybe bike to school or walk to school, or they just have a little, they can go to the market by themselves if they live in a city, a walkable city or in a little town, I'm imagining all sorts of scenarios from fifth grade on. Mm-hmm. What are some things to help share with them prevention and what to do without obviously making them completely terrified of being on their own. Yeah, I think this is where technology can really help and and support. I think many uh, kids who are tweens, teens are starting to have phones. And I really encourage parents to be super candid about saying, you know, we are going to get on this family tracker app or, you know, and let's, let's practice using it. So I know where you are and that you're safe and you know where I am. And I think it's also teaching kids from an early age before they even get to the point where they're old enough to walk down to the 7-Eleven or what have you, that they are being taught to be aware of their surroundings and what to do if they find that they're lost you know, that people say, find someone who looks like a mom. That's always, totally. some, you know, some good guidance there and role modeling that and, and starting to do that 
before your child is 10 or 12 so that it's not a new and inflammatory conversation. It's just been part of the narrative all along. And then I think it's also starting to practice when your child gets to be 10 or 12. I know that I did this with my kids when I would say, all right, I'm going to sit in the car and I'm going to let you walk inside, get a Slurpee. And so this is about, you know, about how much it costs. And I let them practice with me right there. So it's sort of a graduated way to give them that autonomy in a safe way that encourages them to have in their toolbox some safety tools already. And is there anything that school-age kids should, could, would know about, like, is there an age when they should learn CPR? Generally speaking, um, sometime when kids are around late middle school, sort of in that age, sort of early teenage years and beyond, then it is absolutely okay to start with some basic first aid and and basic CPR. I think that the biggest piece of that, I would say, is teaching kids how to call 911. You can do that much earlier, obviously, than the preteen years. But if there was a situation, how to get help so that even before trying to help someone else themselves, that that's the most uh, important thing that they can do is to raise the alarm bells, call 911. And so how would they do that? And that means also being able to, you know, uh, have some awareness of their surroundings so that they can be helpful in indicating where they are, even though our cell phones are, are pretty magical about that kind of stuff these days. But even still, I think that it's, it's a useful consideration. But then certainly for children in high school, getting CPR certified is an excellent idea and understanding, for example, what an AED is. That just is also making me think of pool safety for some reasons. What are some things that people don't realize about pool safety and kids who are old enough, know how to swim, and you see emergencies? Yeah, a couple of things. I think that, number one, it happens all year round. And so people oftentimes tend to assume, oh, there won't be any kinds of water injury in the middle of November because pools are closed. And I am here to tell you that with different kinds of play outside and depending on where people live, uh, falling into bodies of water, whether it's a river or a local pond, even ones that tend to be, can be shallow, it is absolutely possible to have water injury in any uh, body of water at any time of year. So I think that number one is incredibly important to understand and realize and to encourage kids to steer clear. I think another piece is that what many folks feel that once a child is older and who knows how to swim, that uh, that's all you got to worry about. And I come on very strongly to say that there always needs to be a water watcher, that somebody needs to have the assignment when others are swimming to be very aware of what's happening in the water as we see kids of all ages and all abilities, swimming abilities, can have negative outcomes when a lot is going on and people are distracted. Yeah. I often, you know, notice like older kids are put in charge of young kids in, you know, pool settings, not lifeguards, but just like the 12 year olds are watching a bunch of young children. And that, that feels like too much of a burden in case anything happened. And actually that, there should be some some eyes on deck that are responsible adults who won't be, or a pair of eyes that won't be, you know, because the expectation that 
young people can take on that emotional burden too is, is a lot. Agree. What about helmets? Whether it's like for skiing or bikes or scooters, how protective are helmets? Does it matter how you wear helmets? And does it give a sense of fall safety or is it really a meaningful asset? Well, the data is very clear that a a well-fitting, approved helmet, whether it is for skateboarding, bicycling, uh, made for skiing, that it uh, absolutely is protective against head injury. And so I think that it is the only right thing to do is normalize it from the very, very beginning. You know, and what's nice is when you've got three-year-olds and four-year-olds, they really like the helmets that have cool dinosaur horns on the top or that have those those fun designs, I really encourage uh, folks to make sure that that start of, starts then. And every single time they are out in any kind of a vehicle uh, or anything on wheels or anything that moves that they're on. And so that, that by the time that kids are 10 to 12, that's just part of their operation. And is that same for skiing? I don't know why I'm picking skiing. I think I'm thinking of winter coming. Or, or any winter sports? Yep, 100%. Snowboarding, skiing, for sure. All of those types of winter sports, even for young kids learning how to ice skate, that's a, another great place where folks should wear a well-fitted uh, helmet. Now, moving on to teenagers, <laughs> I want to finish up with what can be even the most terrifying conversation, which is the emergencies that you see with teenagers, maybe it's not. Do you find that there's anything that in terms of just public service announcement that you find going on that could be preventable or something that could go better if we know about it? You know, I'm living this right now. I've got a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, so this speaks to me very, very much. And as a pediatric emergency physician, my word, I have certainly seen it all from this age group, from tragedy to triumph. And I will say that it's important to keep in mind that adolescence, and I know I don't have to tell you, adolescence is a time, right, where kids feel like they're invincible and that they know everything and that they'll never, ever die. And so that is, you know, to be an everlasting teenager, right? What is not to like? And that makes them more more likely to engage in those risk-taking behaviors. And it doesn't mean just substance use, but that is certainly a real part of the teenage years. But it has to do with everything from, you know, making a crazy skateboard jump to getting on an ATV without a helmet from driving irresponsibly and getting in a motor vehicle crash. So the the one thing that I have really tried to do with my own kids that I have learned from other pediatric colleagues is to create a very safe and a judgment-free zone. It doesn't mean there's no consequence because my kids know, talk to my kids, they they know that is the case, but that in the heat of the moment that uh, safety And uh, scene safety is really the first thing. And so they know that without any questions asked, if they find themselves in any kind of a situation that feels unsafe to them, that they will categorically get removed from that situation by me. And we started having that conversation well beyond 
they were starting to get asked to attend high school parties and things like that. So I think that number one, that allows you as a parent access into what potentially might be an emergency situation. And it means that there won't be avoidance of alerting you in the event early, alerting you early in the event that a a situation has occurred. And I think, you know, with injury and injury prevention, right, preventing it really is the key. And then immediately getting to treatment is sort of the other side of injury prevention that we that we uh, deploy in emergency medicine. Yeah, it's so important to keep highlighting, especially for teenagers, that their safety is much more important both to us and to them than the getting into trouble part of it. Because otherwise, you know, it's much more much more scary to think that you wouldn't be called on. Now, I, I can't remember what this is called, and I had a whole episode on fentanyl. The one thing that I will say about, you know, a lot of the, the latest buzz about fentanyl and the rainbow fentanyl is that, you know, that stuff is uh, fairly expensive on, on, the, on, the, on the street market, as it were. And so I know that there has been a lot of concern that will kids get that in their Halloween candy, for example, will, will, will people try to, to slip that in? That's not really a concern for those of us in medicine and in toxicology. What we know of uh, persons who misuse substances such as that, they, they are not looking to give that, that stuff away. And so the so, benefit to getting, getting it out there would be a dealer that wants to attract addicts, mm-hmm. not just right. handing it out to never see a child again. So I think that's worth saying just to alleviate some of the current stress on the, the idea that it would be in Halloween candy. Yeah. Yeah. People are coming to all the time. And then in terms of just teenagers and drinking, mm-hmm. where's the line between recognizing if a teenager is drunk and feeling like they've had too much, they need to go to the emergency room? I think that whenever there is a decrease, we decrease mental status, if there is a decrease in responsiveness, then that makes me concerned that they need to be evaluated to make sure that they are have not had so much alcohol uh, intoxication that they are having respiratory depression and uh, and can have significant negative outcomes because of of that thankfully that doesn't happen often to that degree but i do think that it is good guidance that if they i tell my kids that if they are out at a party and someone seems like they've had so much to drink that they are not responding, then it doesn't matter if they're sleeping or whatever, that somebody in authority needs to be alerted to check on them to make sure that they're okay. And just thinking about the holiday season, when adults are passing around drinks mm-hmm. and people aren't paying attention, I imagine that there's a little bit more flexibility or looseness in terms of what's happening with teenagers. And I wonder if that's just something to look out for during this time. And of course, never getting into a car. Yeah, m- most, most definitely. I think that I encourage parents to have a little bit of an inventory check on uh, the alcohol that's in their home and know where, where it is and how much is in, uh, in the bottle. And not only that, but for open bottles to open up, uh, pull off the top and take a whiff and make sure that the uh, substance in there smells like uh, the real substance and hasn't been replaced. 
And it is just a simple matter of managing access sometimes that can that can be helpful. But again, also, this is where having a very, very open conversation amongst the adults that, okay, you know, this is going to be the person here at the party who is going to be very in tune to any potential uh, safety issues and will manage their own intake and consumption accordingly so that they can stay on their game. So before we end this conversation, now that I've provoked anxiety potentially in, in folks thinking about all that, and I'm sure what yeah. a what an interesting job you have. Yeah. I always say to people, I'm, I'm fun at parties, aren't I? Totally. Totally. You know, at the same time, you probably are fantastic at parties because there's that way of checking in with you, like, is everything fine? <laughs> I would love that. I would love an emergency medicine physician at a party. I'd feel so relaxed. You could take on all of the stress. So it's probably not as fun for you if everybody's like, oh, you're here. We're good. But I think knowing the information that can help you plan the be- as best as you can in situations that are by nature unplannable is super helpful. And if there's something that you say to people that helps alleviate the general stress about something going wrong. What is it? Well, first of all, I always tell parents, I said it before in this in this broadcast and I try to say it as often as I can that we need to give each other grace. You know, we are all trying the best that we can. There aren't a lot of parents out there who I know get up and say, you know, I'm going to be a bad parent today. And so that, <laughs> that you know that we're we're not doing that. We are all doing our best. So giving ourselves a little bit of grace and understanding that we made it through adolescence and, uh, and, and childhood, and we got there. And there are a lot of left turns in the journey, and it certainly isn't a straight one, but, uh, but we're still on the road. And together, we will make sure that our kids are too. And, and again, I think so many times we, with, with parenting, we are nervous. We're trying our best. We hold ourselves to high standards because we want our kids to do well. And that can be a really awful feeling sometimes when you feel like you don't measure up. And so it's really important, I feel, especially at a tricky time for parents when they bring their children into urgent care or to emergency, for me to give that validation and say, you know what, you are doing a good job and good for you for noticing enough to get your child here. Let me take it from here. And that's a good moment for people where they feel like, all right, I can pick the ball up when you're done. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.